0: Hello and welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks, the opioid edition. I'm Tracy McCray and with me today is Dr. Holly Geyer. Dr. Geyer is a hospital internal medicine physician and member of the American Society of Addiction Medicine with substantial experience working in the addiction field. She currently serves as a practice leader working with the Opioid Stewardship Program at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. In past episodes, we've been looking at how physicians identify the right patient and the right drug the right dose, the right duration when they are prescribing opioids for pain management. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the dependency and addiction issues surrounding the opioid crisis and what resources are available to combat this growing epidemic. First of all, uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Geyer.
1: Thank you for having me on, Tracy. Glad to be here.
0: All right. So here is our first question. Um, I didn't even realize, I guess it makes sense, but that there is a whole specific field for addiction medicine.
1: Well, you're not alone, Tracy. Um, in fact, a variety of physicians are actually unfamiliar with this as well. It's really been a growing field over the last couple of decades. Um, many people are familiar with the field of addiction psychiatry, but um, addiction medicine physicians have kind of been newcomers to the field. Um You know, there's a variety of ways to come to uh, the field of addiction, psychiatry, internal medicine, family medicine, even some medical subspecialties. A number of boards certify these individuals, and as of 2016, the American Board of Preventative Medicine has now undertaken the American Board of Addiction Medicine to certify uh, physicians interested coming from these various backgrounds.
0: When I think of addiction medicine, I just think of like rehab, that someone goes into rehab, but I would suspect that it's more than that.
1: Good point. Absolutely. There's a variety of things to look for in addiction medicine specialists. These individuals should be able to both recognize and diagnose addiction as a primary brain illness, um, and they should be able to do it independent of the substance or behavior involved. Uh, they should be able to do the screening measures required, as well as brief interventions, referral to treatment. These should be, hopefully, uh, positive, empathetic individuals who have the skills needed to motivate patients and their families to make sure that the patients get to where they need to go. Other things I would hope they'd be able to do is understand the importance of drug testing technology, understand the neurobiology of addiction, and then ultimately the techniques used in the field of addiction to ensure that patients are receiving both the neurobehavioral as well as the medications necessary to treat the disorders.
0: All right. Um, What is the difference between physical dependence and addiction? I kind of thought they were one and the same, but I guess they must not be.
1: Well, that's a very good question. And quite frankly, uh, uh, discussion point that um, many physicians seem to tackle and not have a good grasp on. It's important to understand physical dependence does not equal addiction. You know, in our field, we understand that many patients are given opioids, even for very short periods of time. They take them as prescribed and appropriately, and then after being on them long enough, experience some degree of withdrawal and some degree of tolerance. This is not addiction. This is physical dependence. And we see this with a variety of other medications that we provide. Clonidine will do this, antidepressants, propranolol. When we think of physical dependence, it's kind of a complex physical and psychological state. Um, It might require other therapies similar to addiction treatment and then ultimately consideration of even opioid agonists if uh, the symptoms are severe enough.
0: So does physical dependence, if not addressed, become addiction or does that not even happen?
1: Not necessarily. Physical dependence over time can transform to addiction, but it's not a linear line. Uh, addiction in itself is something that um, can develop if there are predisposing features inside that individual, and we can talk about those in just a little bit. I think it's important that we understand the definition of addiction, and I like the American Society of Addiction Medicine's definition. Uh, we recognize it as a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. And then dysfunction in these circuits leads to the characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations.
0: So when then it comes to opioids, then how has it become addiction? Just that you are addicted to the opioids or, or anything that touches that part of the brain?
1: Good question, Tracy. So to understand the process of addiction, it's important to understand the neuropathology of addiction and dependence. Typically, when we use opioids, the ultimate goal is to target either the periaqueductal gray area and or the spinal cord, with the ultimate goal of modulating that pain. Uh, The process isn't that simple, though. Hmm. Opiates bind to receptors throughout the brain. This includes the limbic system and the reward system. When we think of the reward pathway, there's a variety of brain areas, including the ventral tegmental area, the nucleus accumbens, the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, all of which work in coordination to reinforce that reward pathway. The more an individual uses the opioids, the more that pathway is reinforced.
0: While recognizing that uh, addiction and dependence kind of look alike, how does a provider tell them apart, or how do how do you diagnose that?
1: Uh, right now, the standard of care to diagnosing this disorder is to use the DSM-5 substance use disorder criteria. Uh, there's a variety of different um, questions that one would ask a patient, and depending on the response, we can diagnose a patient as having either mild, moderate, or severe opiate use disorder, or none at all, quite frankly. Some of the things that we consider when we ask these questions is whether or not the patient's taking the opioid in larger amounts than intended or for longer time periods than necessary. Um, if they want to cut down but they're not able to do it or they're spending a lot of time obtaining the opioid. If they have cravings or strong desire to use it or they repeatedly can't carry out major obligations at their work or school or home. You know, if these individuals continue to use despite persistent or recurring social or interpersonal problems, that can certainly be a sign if they're stopping or reducing important social, occupational, or recreational activities, if they recurrently use these opioids despite being in physically hazardous situations, and that there's a consistent use of opioids despite recognizing that they're having these problems. Um, DSM-5 also includes tolerance and withdrawal criteria, but these are typically not criteria that can be met if an individual is taking opioids under appropriate medical supervision. When it
0: comes to opioid misuse, I know there are some statistics from the Journal of the American Medical Association that talks about that uh, the, different, the statistics of that misuse. Can you share that with us, please?
1: Definitely. So we recognize that misuse of prescribed opioids has been a major problem, um, especially in America. In fact, as you probably heard, 80% of all opioids used are used by Americans. As we described, misuse of opioids may or may not be a sign of addiction itself. There was an interesting study, however. Uh, The destination of opioids given to patients with patterns of misuse and abuse included about a quarter of them uh, being used by the individual who the prescription was written for, a quarter of prescriptions being given away to friends and family for free, a quarter of them being sold to friends and family, and then 15% being directly dealt in a drug dealing format. I believe that was JAMA in 2014. You know, there was another study that talked about uh, four and five new heroin users starting out misusing prescription painkillers, and that was fairly recent. Um, uh, that was in the Journal of Drug and Alcohol Dependence in just 2013. So clearly, we're, we're seeing drugs going where they don't belong.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about what would constitute misuse or abuse? I mean, we have talked about, you know, giving them to friends, selling them, but where does it cross the line?
1: So that's a good question, and what we've identified over time is that not all misuse really constitutes abuse. There's certainly circumstances where patients might inappropriately use their medications, but it's not necessarily a form of diversion and/or something one might consider to be part of the opioid use um, disorder criteria. Now, things that I keep in mind with my practice are warning signs. Um, you know, if they're increasing dose requirements without a change in their underlying disease status. Um, sometimes if there's warning signs on the prescription monitoring program, say they're seeing multiple providers over the last couple of years um, and they're receiving opioids from a variety of sources or pretend that they've been to multiple emergency rooms in the last few weeks, again, seeking out opioids, those might be red flags. Certainly we have our share of prescription forgery out there. You know, if patients are barring another patient's drugs or obtaining prescriptions from medical sources. Uh, Certainly, if they're selling their drugs, that that would definitely be abuse. Um, Certainly, sometimes in my practice, they see hostile or overly aggressive behavior. Uh, Patients can, you know, sometimes give the story that they're currently replacing and misplacing their prescriptions. They might have ongoing pain despite resolution of the driving process, evidence of drug hoarding, or if they even request specific drugs. Sometimes that can be a bit of a hint.
0: I'm curious, is there a certain part of the population that is at risk for opioid abuse or addiction?
1: Absolutely. You know, there were some interesting studies that came out over the last few years. In a study that was using data from the Knighted funded Monitoring the Future Survey of Adolescents uh, Drug Use and Attitudes Conducted Annually, Um, they identified that uh, individuals by grave 12 who had received a prescription for opioid pain medication were actually 33% um, higher risk of misusing the opioid between age 19 and 25. So age is certainly one thing. And we used to use the mantra somewhere between age 18 and 45 as our higher risk population. Length of exposure is another issue. You know, there was an interesting study completed in 2017 by the CDC They found that a one-day opioid prescription carries a 6% risk of use of the opioid at one year. That goes down to 2.9% at three years later. An eight-day prescription can carry the risk of 13.5% of patients still using that drug one year later. And an astonishing 30% of patients will still be using the drug at one year if they're given a month-long prescription.
0: Which is the way it used to be.
1: Absolutely, yes. Chronic exposure to opiates and long-term prescriptions were really the the mainstay approach for many practitioners. We're certainly rethinking that.
0: All right, let's move on to treatment. Um, What are the treatment options for patients with opioid physical dependency and addiction?
1: Uh, Tracy, the answer to that is referral to high-quality care. Um, That's the best way I can emphasize it. Addiction medicine specialist involvement is going to be key once you've diagnosed or if you have a high enough suspicion that your patient might have an opiate use disorder. We have a variety of options available to patients. Um, this includes psychological interventions such as motivational interviewing, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, among a variety of others, and these can be done in both inpatient and outpatient settings. Frequently used is opiate maintenance therapy, or MAT or OMT. That's the use of pharmacologic agents. Uh, for the treatment of opiate use disorder, and this has really emerged as really the standard of care. Currently, improved medications for opiate use disorder include buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone. So uh, buprenorphine and methadone have been shown to improve the signs and symptoms of withdrawal. Um, they help stabilize the normal CNS neuroactivity, um, they block the receptors, you know, reducing illicit abuse from other sources, and ultimately, we hope, reduce drug cravings.
0: All right, and then the final question for this podcast, can you describe the available pharmacotherapies for opioid dependence and the differences between them?
1: Absolutely. So probably the the one most people are familiar with is methadone. You've probably heard of methadone clinics for opioid treatment. They're in every state virtually now. They're uh, heavily government-regulated. The mechanism of methadone is that it's a full mu-opioid agonist, which means when it binds to that receptor, um, it prevents binding of other opiates, at least in some degree. Um, it also has some NMDA antagonist properties as well. You know, the nice thing about methadone is that it's got a long half-life. Typically, the sex will last about 24 to 36 hours, and it comes in a variety of forms. You can take it by mouth, subcutaneous, IV. There's even a prorectal version. <laughs> you know, the advantages are that, number one, is long-lasting. So that prevents a lot of the withdrawal that some patients have with the shorter-acting opiates. It's pretty cheap. And um, there's been some studies that have looked at the benefits. A variety of advantages include uh, the fact that it's reducing um, criminal activity, things like needle sharing, HIV infections, and, of course, the use of uh, other opiates. Now, that being stated, um, it's got a variety of disadvantages, too, and um, what I've seen in the field is kind of a slow transition from the use of methadone as standard of care, perhaps to more consideration for a drug like buprenorphine. And the reason I say that is methadone is still the number one single-agent prescribed substance causing unintended fatalities and overdoses in the United States. You will still get respiratory depression, and it can be delayed. Um, Cardiac conduction abnormalities with QT prolongation, lots of drug abnormalities because it's processed via the SIPS 3A4 system. Abuse potential is there, just like any other opiate. And ultimately, it's got a lack of privacy um, during administration, which might uh, make some patients a little hesitant to use it, especially in a public setting. So we also have buprenorphine as an option. Uh, this is a partial mu agonist, um, but antagonist to kappa and delta receptors as well. A variety of ways to take this one in, um, oral, transdermal, you know, usually start low, as they say, and work your way up from dosing. So, you know, usually two milligrams to start with and then titrate upwards. It's got some advantages and disadvantages. Um, the success with it is really that it improves retention and treatment and reduces illicit opiate use for other drugs disadvantages is that it's expensive. Um, a lot of times for both the patches, it can be upwards of $170 a month. You must wait about 72 hours between dosing escalation, and it's difficult to screen for in the standard urine drug screen. Um, that being stated, it's easier to use in an office setting and allows for a bit more privacy for patients.
0: That's all the time we have today on Mayo Clinic Talks. Thank you so much, Dr. Holly Geyer.
1: Thank you again, Tracy.
0: Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share with a friend. Healthcare professionals looking to claim CME credit for this podcast can go to ce.mayo.edu slash opioidpc and register. That's ce.mayo.edu slash opioidpc.